You're listening to the Rec2 Tech podcast. We connect the tech thought leaders across the globe to deliver content that allows you to make better career and hiring decisions. As some of you know, my name is Lewis Adams Dunstan, and I'm on a mission to connect with as many thought leaders and technical experts from within the field of data as I can to better understand some of the decisions that they've made during their careers and why. Today, I'll be speaking with Mr. Ben Taylor, who's the Chief AI Evangelist at Data Robot, about making smarter decisions. As a quick intro, Ben is an advocate for sharing knowledge and is well known for his machine learning work within the data science community. He's been a guest speaker at many tech summits around the world, has worked at some highly innovative tech companies, and most excitingly for me, specific to actually what we're gonna be touching on today, he's been heavily involved in building products that significantly reduce the time to hire. So for me, the combination of Ben's technical knowledge and my extensive experience in the HR and talent acquisition space, we hope to create some really valuable and relatable insights for our viewers. Uh, welcome to the show, Ben. Yeah, this will be fun. Thanks, Lewis. Um, if you wanted to perhaps give a quick intro into yourself and your background. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lewis. So I think for anyone in the AI industry that has gray, I, I've got a lot of gray in my beard. It, maybe the <laughs> lighting, it's not that obvious, or maybe it's more obvious. They they didn't go to school to study artificial intelligence. They went to school for something else, some, mm -hmm. some STEM-related background. And so for me, it was chemical engineering. <laughs> and that's what, that's what I started studying. I, I think for students that are coming out of high school, they're it's unfortunate. I think they're very naive. They don't they don't really know what they want to be. They yeah. don't know and so sometimes you'll hear people say, I want to be a doctor, I want to want to be a lawyer. But I would argue they've had access to limited option limited options. So if you asked graduating high school students to list all possible careers, I think for people in industry we'd be disappointed by how few they could list. So the concept of an IO psychologist or even a chemical engineer they've never heard of that. They don't know what that is. They, they could not define the job role or the function or they don't know if they'd like it. So I ended up studying chemical engineering. So I think it's kind of a crapshoot out of the gate. Why did I choose chemical engineering instead of computer science? Well, my memory is when I looked at the computer science department, all they talked about were games, just designing computer games. And I thought that seemed kind of silly and it didn't seem like it would add a lot of meaning for me. And I chose chemical engineering because I liked math, but I also had to take care of my pre-med uh, recs. So your OCHEM and your GenChem and your biology series. I had, and that was one of the curriculums that allowed me to get a math minor, but also take care of the pre-med uh, requirements. So that, that's why I chose that out of the gate. And I, I didn't like it. I didn't like chemical engineering that much. I thought it was really hard. I, I didn't think it was that exciting. Um, you're building for the test, you're building chemical plants. You know, you're essentially designing a distillation column or some type of chemical process. And hopefully there's, I'd love for to have chemical engineers actually listen because like what, what's exciting about that? There's nothing exciting about building a distillation column. Um, and if anything, computers or robots will just do it for you in the future. So why, why should you do it? Yeah. But I was the department president and that made me, by convincing other students to stay in the department, because we had a big dropout rate. I think it looked like a pyramid. We had 60 freshmen and 
I think 14 seniors, everyone was dropping out of the program. And so I think by trying to convince people to stay, I ended up convincing myself that I actually liked chemical engineering. Um, but, um, I think to kind of get back on track on maybe the bigger topics that we'll be hitting on today, why did I, why did I learn how to program? Well, I was introduced to it. I actually, uh, back in 2003, I lived in the woods while I was going to college and there was some media around it. And so I had a, a blog post where I post stuff. And so I learned how to program in HTML, CSS. And then I started a rock climbing company while I was going to school where I had to learn PHP. So the LAMP stack, um, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. And so I just had to kind of suffer through it and learn, but it wasn't part of my curriculum. And so I think when I look back at my career, there's a lot of randomness that ended up working out well. So having this internship working on satellite in image processing or going to grad school and working on particle segmentation, computer vision algorithms, or going to work at Intel Micron and working on process control and fault detection models or working at a hedge fund. Um, a lot of these decisions were very lucky decisions and there were there was a lot of confusion attached to these decisions at the time. And so I, yeah, so looking back on my career, it could have gone a very different way where I had gone with the wrong employer or made the wrong decision. And, and I see decision points where that was a real chance. I could have made the wrong decision and that would have set me back uh, a lot. I would have been set back five or 10 years of my career if I had gone with the wrong employer. So, I mean, how do you know who the wrong employer is? Is that just through not researching, I guess, initially knowing the direction you want to go and then researching the type of business that, that might be able to take you there? That That's a great question, Lewis, because I think you're, for people that are entering the workforce, they don't know. Right. They don't know what makes a good employer. And so if um, if you're working at your first job, and if I say are you working for a good company? You can say, we've got really good glass door reviews. We've got a fully stocked kitchen. We've got flexible time. We've got this great maternity leave. You can mention off all these um, perks, but is it a good company? I would say you don't know if it's your first company. You don't know. Yeah. How can you know? You don't have a reference. Is it better than working at Walmart as a greeter? Yeah, I'm sure it is. Like, you know, if that's what you have to school for, is it better than this other alternative? Is it better than roofing? Yeah, it probably is. Um, if that's what you studied, but is it better than working for the competition? Is it better for working for another company in the industry? And so I think that's something that people don't know. And and here's an analogy that I've experienced. So being a first time home buyer, we go to look for homes. Mm-hmm. I think we spent four months looking for our first home and we don't know what we don't know. And we walk into a home and we see beautiful granite countertops. We've never told our realtor that that was important to us. Or we go to this home and we see beautiful views. We never told our realtor that that was important to us. And so you kind of have to experience it before you know it. And um, so I would say my first great job happened on my fourth job in my industry. So I worked for Intel Micron. I worked for a hedge fund. I went back to Intel Micron. And then I joined a company called HireVue. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a great job. I, I love that job because I could ski when I wanted to. And in Utah, you have to be sensitive to the storms that are coming. So it's it's a little hard to plan. So I don't want to plan my ski day a week from now. I'm going to plan it two days from now because you have to look at the weather and how things are coming together. 
Yeah. So I felt like I was able to ski. I felt like I was able to build my personal brand. I felt like I was able to work on hard problems that were challenging. The stuff you're working on was different every week. Mm -hmm. Um, The customers were impressive. Get to work directly with Fortune 100 companies. And then I was lucky enough, I got to hire my team. So I got to handpick everyone on my team. And if you don't like the team you work with, it's your fault. So be careful, like hire, be careful how you hire, try, try to hire the right type of people that will add energy and and make you look forward to going to work. And I feel like I nailed, I, I kind of hit the jackpot with all of that. But then four years later, I quit that job. So why, why would you ever quit a job when you finally figured it out? And that was because I had the itch to go to a startup. Yep. So that's what I did three years ago. But, um, and maybe uh, a quick point to call out. I felt like at I am Flash, I didn't feel like I was being challenged to my limit of what I knew. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't people. There are people in I am Flash or Intel Micron that are doing things that we don't have the background to comprehend. Like they are doing very, very sophisticated things with chip design, some process control improvement. Like they're doing very complicated stuff there, but I wasn't. Yep. So the role I was in, I wasn't doing that stuff like that. So I didn't feel like I was being challenged, but then I went to a hedge fund and it was almost like I was being too challenged. It was, (laughs) it was like a fire, fire hose to the brain. And it was, I didn't have very good work-life balance. It was stressful. And, And that's something that, I think people get to later on their in their career, they care less about the dollar amount. Yeah. So I think when you're a young, um, when you're a young buck or you're, you know, when you just experience at that point, right? You just yeah, want to a, try something and see what it's about. It, yeah. You don't obsess as much about the income. You obsess more about what am I working on and how does that prepare me where I want to be in three years? And yeah. I think that's a good guideline to give to people. Um, so when you enter a career, where do you want to be in three years or five years? And it's up to you. Do you want to be running your, do you want to be the CEO of your own company? Do you want to be a manager? Do you want to have your boss's position? Do you want to be a public speaker? So just it, but this, but I'm kind of falling back on myself because you don't know what you want to do. (laughs) Like kind of getting back to the beginning, like would you enjoy being a keynote speaker? Would you enjoy being an author? Would you enjoy running a research group? If you haven't done that, if you don't have people in your network that you know that have, you you don't know. So like, that's t- touching on a point there, just to jump in, but you, you mentioned if you don't have people in your network. So going back to when you start thinking about your career, one of those things should be networking with the people that might actually be doing that particular job and then actually engaging with them and trying to find out what experiences they've had to give you a much better insight into what might be or what might not be right for you. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful because if you have an opportunity, for, some people like speaking, some people don't. But if you have the opportunity to go talk to a keynote speaker and say, I loved, you know, I loved your keynote or I loved what you did. How did you get to a point where someone would want you to give a keynote? Yeah. And, and that's a long conversation. It's like, well, I gave this meetup talk seven years ago. That was terrible. Like absolutely terrible. Like, you know, the people that organize it will still talk about how bad that talk was. And through trial and error and doing these different things, 30 talks later, here, you know, here I am. I'm giving this, you know, this big keynote and I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And but I'm learning along the way or I, I've never written a book, but you can find people that are authors and yep. see how did you become an author? Well, like there's always a backstory. And I think that's a key thing is everyone has a story. And so if you find interesting people that you 
want to imitate. It's it's impossible to imitate anyone's journey perfectly. Yep. And that's because of the luck, the luck and the network. Everyone has a different network. Everyone has a different luck and opportunity. And so much of this is timing. Um, so yeah. if you're and this hits on maybe some something that people can do. Um, when I was working at I Am Flash, I had an opportunity to come up to go work at a hedge fund. But the hedge fund was hiring a GPU expert and an artificial intelligence expert. And my schooling would have never prepared me for that job. But I was I always had these side passion projects. And so I was working on I, I had a 480 NVIDIA GPU. And this is before the hype of deep learning. So in data science and in machine learning, a lot of people talk about GPUs. But I was using GPUs before anyone was talking about GPUs. And I was using them for high performance computing because I, I really fell in love with that. I thought that was so amazing that my computer was 30 times faster than someone else's computer yep. using these types of methods. And, and so by having these passion projects, that allowed me to take advantage of a time timely opportunity. So they're, they're hiring at the hedge fund. They're looking for the skill set. I happen to have this background, but not because I learned it at school, but because I, I had intrinsic motivation. I was passionate about it. But then more importantly, I made the leap. I was willing to go out into the unknown and go join a hedge fund. Like I, I have a mortgage. What happens if I get fired in a week? What happens if I get fired in four weeks? What if imposter syndrome? Like what, what if they find out that I'm I'm not the quant they thought I was? <laughs> and and those are all emotions that are swirling through your mind. And for people, especially after you get your first job, I would say the hardest job to quit is your first job. Yeah. Because sometimes you have um financial burdens attached to that first job. You have mm -hmm. a car payment, you have a mortgage payment, you are living a new life because you have your first salaried position. And so the idea of quitting that first salaried position, um, it, it it's going off into the unknown. And you're going to make mistakes. I think it keeps coming back to that main point, though, that if right at the beginning of your career, if you think about where you want to be in three, five, ten years time, it doesn't always go down that path. But if the business that you're working for, although it supports your financial commitments, if it's not taking you on that journey, then it probably isn't the right place to be. Yeah. Um, and then touching on something else you said, like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, right? So finding something that you're really passionate for and then turning that into a career is another very, very good place to start. Yeah. And there's something that comes with passion. If you can find something you're really passionate about, you can actually become you can become one of the leading experts on that topic. And so it it's really gratifying if you can just fall to the bottom of the rabbit hole on some topic. Mm -hmm. So find a topic that is fascinating to you. You find it very interesting and just obsess about it more than anyone you've ever met in that topic and get to the bottom of that rabbit hole. And what you'll find is these rabbit holes are bottomless. They just keep like there, there's when it, especially when it comes to researching anything. So if you're researching psychology, artificial intelligence, uh, even chemistry, a lot of the things that you're researching, there's no such thing as a brick wall. So there's no edge of the, of the known universe. You're, you'll just continue to fall yeah. through this rabbit hole. And so I think, I think for people that I've seen that, they seem to have the most satisfying careers. They they develop very obsessive personalities about things that matter to them, mm -hmm. and they try to push everything else out. So the sure. and that's another thing that I think some people get intimidated by. They think they have to be good at everything, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm a professional now. I work in the professional workforce. I have to be really good at all of these things, um, you know, building a presentation, giving a talk, doing research, writing code, doing analysis, like I, I, visualizations. I have to be good at everything. And, um, and, it, and I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's you, you, some people talk about working on your weaknesses, but I, I kind of lean and I know this has been said before. This is not new stuff that yeah. I'm kind of in the opinion, just no triple down on your strengths, like figure out what your strengths are and make them super strengths, make them uh, superhuman abilities around things that matter to you. I think from the perspective of a recruiter as well, I can tell you that I guess you'll probably agree in startup life. You might have to wear a few more hats than you would if you were going to work for a tech firm um, that's a little bit more established and businesses I guess it starts with the business as well, because if the business doesn't know entirely what they want, and then you look at a job description as you know, as, as someone who's a job seeker, and you go, "Oh my god, I can't do all that," or then you try oh, to, yeah. so that it, it, I guess there's a gap on both sides. Our businesses creating opportunities within their organisations that are unrealistic um, if they're established, or you know, is there? There's definitely more value for me when I'm selling in a candidate who's looking for something very specific and a business has a specific need. So I think spending time building on your, on your strengths and your specialisms is way more valuable unless you're trying to start or build a, a startup business where you yeah. might just be a little bit more versatile. Well, and you brought up an, uh, an important point there. This is a common joke in the AI machine learning space that job descriptions don't match to reality. So, so they'll, they'll have a list of requirements where, if you tasked me to find someone that satisfied all these requirements, some of them are conflicting where if you want someone to have five years of experience in R, they probably don't have five years of experience in Python or like yeah. you get some of these, that's a very basic example, but you'll get some of these where there's, they actually conflict. There's, there's no way for me to satisfy all these requirements, but where's this job, where's the job required? Where are they coming from? Well, they copied them from, you know, they, they pulled them in through a variety of sources or they took a panel of input and they threw it all together. And that's the problem. Taking a panel, taking a panel of feedback for a job description, you're going to get five perspectives packed into this job description. Mm -hmm. And now you have someone that doesn't exist. Um, and so that can be discouraging for people. This also brings up a gender bias uh, issue. Men, when they look at a job description and if they find out that they're disqualified, they're, they're more likely to apply for a job that they're disqualified for than a woman would. Um, and that's also, that's been shown also with promotions because mm -hmm. um, maybe that's because guys are full, like we're more likely to be bullshit artists or we're like, uh, like whatever we, we, <laughs> we're, we're, we're dumber. We're, we're more reckless, but that, so that, that also comes top of mind. Um, but the, the other thing to think about too, as a candidate, this leans back on your network. So, I might be looking at a job where I'm disqualified. There, there's a there's a key bullet point on here. Like me, I need a P. I don't have a PhD. Maybe mm -hmm. they're requiring a PhD, and they're not even giving me the experience alternative to kind of get around it. It's a hard requirement for candidates. They can get discouraged and think that that's not an option. And I would argue it's not an option if they're coming in through the main funnel. If mm -hmm. you're coming through the main funnel of a thousand people, it's not an option for you. You will be screened out guaranteed. And this gets back to your network. So if you have a good network and if you have access to the hiring manager, if you have access to the data science lead, if you know people that work with the company, that can actually give you exceptions. So if you don't have a PhD, if you don't have this item, uh, the way I describe the recruiting process is you have a thousand candidates and they actually look, everyone looks just like us. 
They look just like you. So there's a lot of confusion. So people take a lot of pride in their resume, but there's hundreds of other people that look just like you on paper. Yeah. So don't, don't be too proud of that resume. And, and and you could argue and look at these resumes say, there's no way that these people have these experience. They're just putting words on a page. Sure. But I'm assessing the resume. Like how, how can I really tell if you're a pandas expert or an SK learn expert? I, I just have to look at this resume and kind of guess at it. Yep. And so you have this big funnel and it goes down to maybe some interviews, uh, some coding assessments, and then you've got the final selection. And the final selection, depending on the company, um, I think at Hireview, we try to get down to five and then three. So we try to get to three people that we thought we were excited about and we try to make a decision. If you can get a personal recommendation coming outside of the company from someone in the community, that could actually take you to final three. Like immediate, like take you right to final three and you might be missing all the, a bunch of requirements, but it doesn't matter. You're getting an endorsement from someone in the industry. And, and, and I've experienced this firsthand where we, some of the hiring managers in Utah, we know each other. And so if someone gets headcount, they'll reach out and say, Hey, I just got five. I just got headcount for five deep, deep learning um, data scientists. Do you yep. know anyone? And we're happy to share that information because we want the favor in return. Um, and so really what they're hitting on is, are there any new up and coming students or up and coming talent that they may have missed in the community? And when you have to fill five positions, that's a huge ask. And so, yeah, yeah, huge ask. So there are anything to do to help. And normally my response is I have no recommendations like that. That's my response. 90% of the time I have no recommendations, mm-hmm. but Sometimes the other ten percent you're saving for when you've got five spots open in your team. Well, it, <laughs> well it's also timely because if there's a recommendation, yeah. like if I have a recommendation in mind, they're not available. And why aren't yeah. they available? Well, they're over here, or they took this position, or they're gone. And um, yeah, so that, there's a lot of value that can come from networking, and that's I'll encourage people to go and present in a meetup which can be, feel very intimidating for someone who's new to the industry because I think to anyone just in general, it can be, very yeah. intimidating. but the value, the value prop is huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. well, interviews are too short and a resume is much shorter. So a resume, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to get 10 to 30 seconds of someone looking at it. And with algorithms now, maybe you don't even get looked at because your GPA or something is just too low. You get screened out. Yeah. But if you do a meetup, it's a 30 to 60 minute interview. Mm-hmm. to a, a panel. You've got 90 people in the audience. You had time to prepare. You made, you came up with the own question. Like you, it's the perfect interview. You came up with the questions. You came up with the answers. You got 90 minutes. You've got a captive audience of 90 people for 90 minutes. Here's your interview. It'll be better than any interview than you've ever had because mm-hmm. every interview is rushed. It's not enough time to really, and even after doing the hiring, I would still say the interview is insufficient to truly assess someone's qualities. It's our best attempt, but we don't have unlimited time and unlimited emotion. There's this true, when you're hiring, there's this emotional leakage that is happening where people get burned out. So if I'm filling a role and I'm doing phone screens and interviewing over time, I reach this point of desperation that (laughs) I just need to hire someone Uh and it's not fun for me. Like it, Getting someone is fun when you finally agree, especially if they turned out to work out okay. Mm-hmm. But the process is not fun, and it can be very confusing on the hiring side. Yeah. I, I mean, for that exact reason is why I'm in the job. <laughs> keeps my job alive in that respect. But um, it is interesting, again, because it just keeps coming back to that being prepared, but also 
creating an opportunity when it comes to meetups or other ways to to create more exposure like use all of the the platforms and avenues that, that you can so from your perspective like suggestions of ways people can do that perhaps ways that you've done that keynote speaks uh, speaking events um meetups linkedin anything else that has helped you along your way in in, in your career um i i won a data competition once it was a local one so that that was helpful to kind of get yeah. your name out i people do ask about kaggle you know do i need to go invest time in kaggle and win and i have i've hired someone who did really well at kaggle they were top 60 in the world mm-hmm. but for most people I think it's a good place if you're learning and you kind of want to go poke around, but I would not rely on your Kaggle score to get a job because you really, you have to be top 1%. Like you, you have to be, you somehow have to break into the top thousand. Uh, maybe that's not true. And I'm, you know, people might disagree, but I just don't, I wouldn't want beginners to be intimidated if they jump into Kaggle and they realize a month later, they're end of the pack. And they, yeah. like, that doesn't mean that they don't have job options. But it does mean that Kaggle is not their ticket. Their Kaggle is not their ticket to a, a, a new job. Um, consulting can be useful. Internships can be useful. I get a lot of flack for this one, but I, I do encourage people to engage on open source projects. If you can commit, like there's a lot of low hanging fruit in the open source community with uh, libraries that people use every day. And if you can find opportunities to improve it, write a blog about it, they're... Uh, there are people out there. I know Amazon's always looking for good blog content on MXNet or Gluon. And potentially, I don't know if Facebook runs a blog on PyTorch, but if there are big name companies out there that if you have a compelling solution with a certain software platform, you could potentially run a blog associated with the company. So like, if I wanted to get into Amazon right now into their deep learning group, as a new student or someone in the market, I might be very aggressive with my contributions into MXNet. Or if I wanted to go work for Facebook, I might be very aggressive with my contributions into PyTorch. Uh, So I don't think this interview scenario has ever happened. Maybe it has. But imagine the interview, if I'm interviewing with you, and I already know what your team uses. I already know the stack. I've done my homework. I've done my research. And if I say, this is a simplistic example, but if I said... Uh, I, I noticed you guys use pandas and you say, yeah. yeah, we use pandas a lot. And if I said, are you familiar with the function get dummies? And everyone's familiar with that one. That's, it'd have to be a new function. But if I said this function and you said, of course I am, we use it all the time. Or, or just you casually say, of course, I'm familiar with it. Imagine the interview process. If I could say I, I was the original author. Like, because something's happening during the interview. Whenever you come to an interview, you are seen as being inferior to the team because I have people that have worked longer than you. They've mm-hmm. worked the problem longer than you. They, they are going to know these different, they'll know PyTorch better than you. They'll know MXNet better than you. And so if you're coming to the interview, you actually don't have the upper hand. You're looked, you're, you're looked as having uh, less experience than my team. And if that type of interview scenario played out, what did you just do? You turned the table on its head where now I think you know more about pandas than everyone on my team. Like even this individual that's worked for me for two years that I've always relied on for like deep pandas knowledge. You've done something mentally to me where I think you might know more than them. And what does that do to my excitement? What does that do to, well, what what, what, is naturally excited at that point as well, because you've paid an interest into something they created. Yeah. And so that would be the slam dunk work on something, develop something where 
the place you want to get a job, they actually naturally have a dependency on your work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some that recommendation, people might get angry, might get frustrated, might think it's impossible. I would say it's not impossible. Like there, there's so much low hanging fruit in these languages. It wouldn't be very hard to even just have a session and just list all the potential work that is waiting to be done for these different platforms that someone can go do. Like, like here's a quick one. Um, Keras is very, very popular. And to my knowledge, maybe this has changed recently, but augmentation is a huge deal with uh, deep learning training on images. And so everyone's dealing with it. You look at augmentation at MXNet, you look at augmentation for Keras and these different platforms for PyTorch. I am not familiar yet with an upgrade or changes inside these platforms where they enable GPU enabled augmentation. A lot of the times augmentation is happening on the CPU and you use multi-threading in a in a batch queue where it's doing all the it's doing all the all the augmentation where it's doing shifting on the images and it's changing things. But if you actually sat down and figured out these are the augmentation elements that I could get a massive GPU speed up on and I could integrate them into training. And, and I would say that that's not that complicated. You just, you just have to commit. You'd have to decide that that was important to you. Yep. You can go through, write a blog, show the speed up, show that you're now running just as fast with augmentation as you were without. Um, and you're using the GPU and you don't need as many threads. So now those threads can be other, other things like network fetch or, or something else. Um, that would show a level of depth and knowledge on the platform that I'm assuming you don't have. During the interview, I'll just assume you, you're not even close to that. You just give, you, give them the resume that you, you know, it could be the 30th resume you've seen that day and, and those kind of things, they, they don't show. Um, yeah. I think now more than ever, where we can't actually go in and see people in, in person as well, that you should be doing all of these things to create a much better chance of success. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I was surprised how important LinkedIn can be. So mm-hmm. building a LinkedIn brand and producing content and kind of showcasing your work on LinkedIn, that that can also offer value in this digital network that we have. I know that you, alongside a, you know a bunch of other guys and girls, that are, are real big knowledge sharers on on LinkedIn. Do you think that there's ever a point where you know you've got it to a level in your career that you don't have to continue doing that, or do you think that? It's important to keep sharing knowledge, to keep engaging in side projects, to keep writing blogs, or is it just about starting your career doing that initially? Um, it, the type of knowledge you share changes, I think, over time. So I've had people ask why I don't show code examples or why I don't commit my own code to open source projects, and that's because I'm at a different I'm at a different stage in my career, okay. where I would say that would be a great thing if I'm trying to land a job as a is a data scientist, maybe a junior, senior data scientist, that'd be great to share code and show some open source commits. But I think with my career to date, I I point to products. I point to the work that was done with HireVue Insights, where I worked on the AI for that system, or I, I point to my startup and I point to the AI that existed in that. And so the most valuable experience I can share today is really tied to more of the pains, uh, it's less technical. It's just, how do you deliver an AI project into production? Mm -hmm. That could sound like a technical discussion, but I think it's not. It's more of a high level. Are you working on a problem that matters to the business? In in this question, a lot of people fail on it. They, AI is the shiny new toy and they start working on a problem that doesn't matter. It matters to them, it matters to the data science team, but it doesn't, 
matter to the business. And so having sharing my experience and just having conversations around how do you how do you determine value for an AI project before you start? Yep. That's a that's a conversation. It's not it's not a code overview. It's not a code deep dive. Or how do you raise funding? You want to go raise funding for an AI an AI startup or a SaaS startup? That that's an experience that I could speak to, like talk about the mistakes and the wins and the things that worked well and the things that didn't work well. And so I, I I think the experience I like sharing the most is the stuff that's top of mind mm-hmm. and stuff that's top of mind for me. And then the other thing I've noticed too, getting back to sharing code, some of the code that I've written, it would be very upsetting to share that code because that code is actually attached to significant suffering. My, like my personal suffering where wow. we, we have this code, it's doing things that aren't available in the open source community, but what did it cost to write this code? Well, I had to max out a business credit card and you know, put $20,000 on business credit card impacted my credit. I had to sleep in the office during Christmas. Like, like there's all of these memories attached to that. And so I feel like, you know, there's, there's blood stains in some of this code. <laughs> and for me to just throw it out to the community on LinkedIn to build brand, it's, it's, it's the wrong time for me to do it. Like, I, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And, and some people might say, well, that's being selfish. And it's like, well, you go, you, you yeah, go max you out. Go you yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you go do that. And then, yeah. and then, then, share, it tell, <laughs> yeah, then share it with us. Um, yeah. And actually this reminds me of a funny story in the startup. Um, we're doing some benchmarking for Dell and they, they were going to run some software on one of our GPU servers. So we're hammering this server with our GPU training for I think 48 hours. And I think, um, I don't think I've struggled terribly with imposter syndrome, but maybe it comes up every once in a while. And so, you know, that there are hardcore high performance computing nerds that are going to be analyzing your server in your data center and they're analyzing your code's behavior. And I remember thinking, are they going to look at this and say, what are you guys idiot? Like, what are you, what are you guys doing? Are you guys kids? Like, what, like, are they going to criticize us or praise us? And when they got on the call, they said, your results are very impressive. We, we have not seen industry results this high for this level of efficiency. You know, I, I forgot the exact numbers, but the, we were averaging 60% CPU utilization on all threads sustained for 48 hours. And our GPU usage was very, very good. And I've, I'm chemical engineering. I've never formally taken a high-performance computing, like OpenMP memory management class or threading class. And it, but the funny thing on the call, so that's a big sigh of relief. Like, oh, okay. So we're not terrible, but I made them laugh on the call because I said... Um, it's funny how fast your code runs when you have to feed your kids. And there's some, <laughs> there's some truth to that because you have limited hardware. We can't just go spin up a $10,000 spend on Amazon to save a customer account. We actually have to make our existing hardware run as fast as possible. And if I can make it run twice as fast next week, that'll be that much better. If I can make it run twice as fast again, it'll be that much better. And so you have this flywheel that does not exist as an employee, but it does exist when you're paying payroll. It does exist when you're paying employees and stressing about contracts. And so the the coding pieces that exist in that, I'm not shouting those from the rooftop. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a lot of that resonates in a lot of different industries, you know, Um, but generally to, to kind of wrap this up. So, 
I guess I've got two last questions. What in your career would you have done anything differently with the decisions you made? I know you've worked for some great businesses, and, and I'm, I'm aware of a lot of the work you've done. But would you have, would you have changed any of those decisions? I I think I would have tried to become a stronger developer. Maybe mm-hmm. in in college, I I would have tried to combine math with computer science rather than math with chemistry. Um, the other thing, I would have joined a startup sooner. Because I worked at Ion Flash for five years, and that mm-hmm. that was good. I understood working for a bigger company, different politics and processes, and some of these big processes they work on, like the, the scale of the manufacturing and the amount of data that they deal with, the terabytes of data is fascinating. But I, I didn't think I needed five years. So hindsight, I may have worked there for two years instead of five years, but... You never know what's going to happen. And if I'd worked there for two years, I may have gone and joined a shitty startup. Like a startup is a gamble. So you join yeah. a startup, you wear a lot of hats, but a lot of startups die. And higher view ended up being a, a solid win. Yeah, but, but at the same time, I had another job offer to go work with another startup and they ended up being a dud. And it, in the moment, there was no way for me to know. So I guess think of it as batting. The more times you can go at bat for opportunities, I would join startups right out of the gate. And there's different stages of startups. You have startups where it's a seed round, it's first time founder. That would be higher risk. But if you have a startup where it's a second time founder and they're raising a series, they raise their series A, second time founder. And this team has already worked together because you can have founder drama. That can mean uncertainty. And so if you're confident that it's a second time founder, they're raising a series A or series B, and the executive team or the founding team work well together, I would say that's low risk. Uh, like that's a very, that's a huge opportunity, low risk. First yeah. time founder, they raised a seed, one to $200,000 seed, huge risk, but yeah. also huge, huge upside if, if you're right. So yeah, it, join a startup sooner, um, figure out work-life balance and family relationships early. I know that can be a, a huge point of tension for people. Because yeah. if you're trying to work really hard, like I, I work on the weekend, you can you can begin to neglect your family. You can neglect things that matter. And I, I've seen people get divorced because they, they, they spiral out of control just focusing on work and their careers. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of value that comes figuring that out, that out. The other thing that comes up is your time is not equal. So you working 14 hours may not be any more productive than you working three hours on the exact same problem. And the thing that comes up is your cognitive ability. How's your sleep? How's your eating habits? Are you exercising? And I, and I've dealt with this where I've been staring at a screen for three hours, trying to figure out an urgent bug, gone to sleep, wake up and I fix the bug in 10 minutes. But in the, (laughs) in the moment it's this impossible struggle. And so I think, I think sometimes we kid ourselves with how much we see time worked as a sign of hustle. So if I can work 14 hour days, I'm hustling. But if you can have a workout routine, listen to audiobooks, have a relationship with your kids, with your wife or your husband, make that a priority. Yep. Um, you may be more productive than the hustler. I think that's I think it's a really good point. So certainly working from home right now as well, where you're you're in the same space. It's very, very hard to differentiate when you're supposed to be working and when you're not. So setting a structure. It's probably very, very good. And again, starting that early on in your career um, is super important. So as like one piece of 
information or like a nugget of advice that you could give to anyone that's really thinking about starting their career or making their next career move from your perspective, what would, what would that be? So I think everyone should go into artificial intelligence. It doesn't mean you have to program, but just apply it to a domain you find interesting. So whether it's psychology, medicine, anything, there are lots of industries waiting to be disrupted. And by understanding AI at a level where you could apply it to that industry, it, it, your career will be very exciting because everything you do will be new. You'll mm-hmm. be disrupting, which is very exciting. It's exciting for you. It could be very stressful for other people in your career, like your peers and your dinosaurs that you're you know, making go extinct. That can be frustrating. So artificial intelligence is a part of our lives, just like programming is beginning to. So for people that are starting out the careers, you need to understand it, but it's it's relatively easy to understand. It's not quantum mechanics or it's not like it's not advanced physics or these other things like in chemistry. You can watch YouTube videos. You can go to talks. You can understand a lot. You can buy some basic books and just kind of work through beginning to end. And you can understand a, a lot about artificial intelligence to be useful, to be dangerous, to apply it and understand it. Um, and we have tools like Data Robot and other AutoML tools where we're beca- we're making this easier and easier. So you can actually build models with Data Robot that required custom programming years ago, but now it doesn't require any programming. And I think that's just accelerating. So in the future, if you're a psychologist or a doctor, you'll be building models with no code. And I'd say that already exists today, but sure. it'll be even more so. Cool. Uh, from my perspective, I think also don't ever be afraid to ask for help, but make sure you bring value to whoever it is that you're asking for that help from, because there's so many other people that are in the same boat that are thinking, okay, well, there's someone that's really active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm just going to drop them a message and say, can you help me? Like not everyone has time for that. Um, so think about how you can bring value and, and then speak to those people and engage with those people. Um, and then, you know, show that passion when you're actually talking to them. Yeah. And you just reminded me, um, social norms can hold you back. And so social norms, they, they change from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So for my parents' generation, you go work for a company and you work there until you retire and you get a pension. So from their perspective, I'd still be working at um, Intel and Micron yeah. if I followed that advice. And I and so I think you have to be very selfish in your interest. So if you went and joined a, a new company, and let's say in two to three weeks, it ends up being not what you imagined, there might be some social pressure for you to stay. Like almost like a divorce or something like, like we're going to make this work. We're going to figure this out, but don't be very sensitive to that. I think sometimes as people, we are, we have too much influence coming from social norms or social pressure. And I think sometimes that can hold people back with their career. And, and, and your fear of speaking would be one of those. So like, if I am scared to get on stage, what is holding me back from doing that? Well, it's the, it's the social pressure and it's you know my perception that I could be judged or they could say things about me or whatever the hundreds of reasons are. And I think I think there's something that is game changing for anyone's career. The less they can care about other people's opinions and the less they can feel influenced by the social norm, they will have complete freedom to do whatever they want. Um, and maybe that means, you know, t- telling your boss exactly what you think or quitting your job or being willing to get leveraged with debt to do, do a startup or something that all of your peers and all of your neighbors will say you're insane. But I think there's a, there's a sprinkle or a garnish of insanity to do anything that's, you know, that has real meaning. Yeah. 
love that. Well, look, Ben, I, I really appreciate your time today. Um, guys and girls, if you're viewing and you uh, you want to keep up to date with the latest knowledge within machine learning, natural language processing, data science, feel free to follow Ben. Um, I'm not sure you've got any connections left, so it might be a case of people having to follow you at this point. Yeah. Um, and if you want anything that's recruitment or HR related in terms of how to manage your process, how to think about um, what kind of role you're looking for next, um, feel free to, to reach out. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Lewis. It's been fun. Cheers.